that it pursues us and chases us down, um, God, because your desire is that all would come to know you. And so, Father, thank you for looking past uh, our humanity. Thank you for looking past our brokenness. Thank you for looking past our, our limitations and our failures and still finding us worthy enough to leave the 99 and come back to find us. So, God, we thank you uh, for that type of love that we can't understand, but we have willing hearts to accept and hopefully uh, share with others around us who need that type of love in their lives, too. In the name of your Son, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys and lady. Great job. We have a fantastic band. Um, yeah, we... Uh, it's amazing uh, what Megan's able to do. I only give her $30 a month as a budget for this band. And so it's more than that. I'm just kidding. But she does a great job with them. And uh, they're talented. They work hard. And uh, I'm very thankful for, that they're all part of the team. Uh, my name's Joe Davis. Uh, we're going to continue with our series today on 2 Corinthians. Uh, the title today is Defiled Temples. Our passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 18. <clears throat> if you're new to Grace Life, one of the core values that we have is that we like to take the scripture uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse in order so that we can get the full effect of the context of what we're supposed to learn. And so we're continuing with 2 Corinthians and we're up to chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Let's just let's look at the passage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or evil, devil, the devil? Or, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So uh, early on in my Christian uh, journey, I remember hearing somebody preaching on this passage about be un do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and they tried to apply it to a lot of different things, you know, business and, and a bunch of different things. But in reality, this is why understanding the history of a passage is so important. Because Paul was being very specific about what he did not want them to be unequally yoked with unbelievers over. So let's talk about the history of the passage, which is uh, the ecumenical temple worship that was going on in Corinth. Ecumenical means all faiths together. <clears throat> so understand that there was a desire by this church in Corinth to integrate their worship with the pagan temple worship that was in their city. As a matter of fact, culturally, the Corinthians were in love with this practice of temple worship. I'm not talking about the Jewish temple. I'm talking about pagan temples. In fact, Paul referenced their desire for this in verse 12 of this book where he says in chapter 6, you are restricted by your own afflictions, your own affections, sorry. So on the heels of talking about being restricted from being vulnerable because of their own affections, he goes directly into this part about temple worship. And it's not a, co a coincidence. It's, it's a planned thing. 
But this time, he's not talking about the corruption that comes from the Jewish temple. Remember, there were people that were saying, yes, you can be a Christian as a Gentile, but then you also have to follow Jewish laws and Jewish rules. He's not talking about that this time. He's talking about pagan temples. And you could see why the, the, the Gentile Christians in Corinth would have been tempted by Jewish temple worship because re regular, ordinary, pagan temple worship was a huge part of their heritage and culture before they met Christ. It was an issue they had struggled with previously, and he addressed it in 1 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, here's the passage in the, in the book 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote to this church. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so he was addressing the issue of the fact that they were constantly looking for ways to mix their worship, for example, the Lord's table, with the way pagans were doing it in their temples. And not only that, there was a lot of things going on. Let me give you a list of some of the practices that the Corinthian church was undertaking as they were trying to mesh and meld their Christian faith with the pagan uh, religions and temples that were around them. <clears throat> First of all, uh, some of the practices, there were explicit worship expressions. Immoral sexual worship, uh, immoral sexual activity during worship. That was one of the things that they were participating in. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses this immorality. Many people don't realize this because they don't take the time to look at the history of the passage. Paul was specifically talking about immorality during worship. I won't get into all the aspects of that, the idea of the temple prostitutes and all those things, but it was as bad as it makes me feel uncomfortable talking to you about it. And then you know what else was going on? They were worshiping under mind-altering drugs. This was part of the history of what was going on in these pagan temples. They would come, they would get high, and they would begin their worship. And then there was this idea of loud, obnoxious clanging of cymbals by women. Matter of fact, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, though I am a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. This gives insight into why Paul wanted women in this particular church. He doesn't address the issue of women in church in any other book. He addresses it in Corinth only. And the reason was the, the specific women in this church were kind of out of control. I mean, this is why Paul says the women should keep silent. I mean, think about that. Annoying, clanging symbols will do that to a man. You know what I'm saying? And so it is interesting to bring this up. The concept of women in the church that a lot of people go to was being written to a church where the women were completely out of control morally. They were out of control with how they were worshiping. All it was was, the, and the idea was the pagan worship, the louder and noisier the worship was, the better the experience. The more drugs you had, the better the experience. That's what was going on in these pagan temples. Something else was happening in these temples, which is very fascinating, that Paul also addresses in 1 Corinthians. Random verbal utterings. These pagans were speaking in tongues. 
Not in a way that they were speaking in tongues where the, where the apostles were speaking in tongues on the southern steps of the temple where people were coming and they were hearing the gospel in their own language and these men were speaking foreign languages they had no idea of knowing. As a matter of fact, in the passage in Corinthians, they say, or in, in Acts it says, uh, why are these men, these Hebrews speaking our language? How do they know this? They must be drunk. And actually it was the Holy Spirit giving them the ability to share the gospel with those who could not understand Hebrew. So this is another thing going on, and that's why Paul addresses in Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, it profits me nothing. In Corinthians 13, what he does, he addresses all the things, in 1 Corinthians 13, all the things that the Corinthians were doing wrong in their worship as they tried to be more like the pagans around them. Another thing we saw is their worship was characterized by savagery, self-mutilation. As a matter of fact, this was a practice that many in the early Catholic Church adopted. When you're sinful, you punish yourself, beat yourself. As a matter of fact, just so you understand how bad it was, here I, I, I used to subscribe to this magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review. It's a great magazine. And really what it does, it basically goes through and it studies all the archaeological findings and it shows how they support the Bible. It's a fantastic scientific uh, approach to, to understanding scripture. Here's what a quote I found in Biblical Archaeology Review said. This was describing the pagan worship in Corinth. It was only in a frenzy that one could hold communion with God. This is what they believed. Or in ecstasy so great, the soul seemed to leave the body to become one with him. This was the experience that these pagans and these Christians together were pursuing. They were pursuing an ecstasy, an experience, an out-of-body experience so great that you could feel like, man, this is unbelievably emotional experience. And they fell in love with this experience. And as I said before, the Greeks were in love with temples because it was part of their culture. Big, beautiful buildings. And they were also in love with religious experience. They, were, they had this laser, the culture itself, not just the Corinthian church, but the culture itself had a laser-like focus on experiences, creating them as often as possible, as intense as possible. And it was all temple-centered activity, temples to false gods, but temples nonetheless. And you could understand how some would be tempted to synergize. That's a really good word. It means to bring together. Some would want to synergize their love for temples with their newfound gospel Christianity, right? You can see that. This was causing them to defile the real temples, which was themselves. It was religious activity that was defiling the temples. Think about that for a minute. Religious activity was defiling the temples of God. And Paul goes in and he wants to realize, and we're going through the theology in just a minute, but Paul wanted them to realize that buildings was not where God was at work. It was within each of their hearts. The building did not contain the power of the experience of God. It was their hearts. So let's look at the theology. God prefers people over buildings. What Paul teaches is that people, after Christ's work on the cross, the, the, you know, the veil was ripped in two and, and all that stuff, what Paul teaches is that the people are now the temple of God. In verse 16, he says that. 
By the way, this was a teaching that you could see would have been despised by the Jews at the time, right? What do you mean the people are the temple? The temple is everything to us. It is our heritage, it is our legacy, it is where we get our moral compass. It is where we gather. The temple is the most important component of Jewish life. So you could see why Jewish Christians and maybe Jews who weren't Christians would hate what Paul is teaching here. That people are the temple? Are you nuts? This is the temple we're talking about, Paul. But in fact, God had declared this in many places in the Old Testament that this would end up being the case. Look at this passage in Ezekiel 37, 27 and 28. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This was a prophecy of the church. He says it in another place that we'll look at in just a minute. But I want you to understand that you can clearly see even when there was temple worship, God's desire was he did not want to live in a building. He didn't want to stay in the Holy of Holies. He wanted to be with his people. Matter of fact, in Leviticus, it says this in 26, 11 to 12. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And in Hebrew, what that really means is Hebrew uses this poetic idea of saying, I will not hate you. It doesn't mean like, okay, I'll tolerate you. It means I will not hate you. And in, the, in Hebrew poetry, it really means the opposite. I will love you. I will not abhor you. In other words, I will love you. So it's kind of like the, uh, the, the opposite effect there. I will love you. I will walk among you. That doesn't sound like the Holy of Holies, does it? And you will, and I will be, and you will be uh, among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. As a matter of fact, this is an undeniable theology all throughout Paul's letters. Paul shows what an incredible knowledge he has of the Old Testament and the prophets. And he teaches this and he was probably, matter of fact, there was a big fight between Paul and Peter about this. Paul is kind of like a, uh, a pioneer when it came to understanding what the gospel taught about the temple. It's an undeniable theology all throughout his letters. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Not in the Holy of Holies, not in the temple, but in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 to 20, right? He addressed all this stuff in the previous letter. Flee from sexual immorality. He's talking about that pagan explicit worship. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What was the price? The price was the reason that God still had a temporary temple. Because Christ had to do his work on the cross to redeem his people, to make us a worthy temple. Until then, he had a temporary dwelling place, which was the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what he meant by, why are you defiling the temple of God? 
There's so much imagery here. Let me explain. There's so much imagery here for people who would have admired big, beautiful religious buildings and would have never wanted to defile them. The buildings were venerated. And there was a specific way, even though it seems like, well, they're doing all kinds of stuff, the drugs and the sex and all. What do you mean? There were specific rules that they had to follow to make sure they didn't break the laws in the temple. And so people would have understood how special and precious these buildings were. And Paul says, you are defiling the temple. You are the temple. It's incredible imagery. Paul does this boomerang. He takes their affections for buildings and tries to flip it around and say, this is the affection you should have for what God has done in your life, specifically in your heart. That that passion you have for those buildings should be directed at what God has done in your heart and life life. Paul explains, we are the beautiful buildings. That's heavy stuff, right? I hope you're tracking with me. This is kind of deep stuff, but I want to go to the devotional part of it now. I want to talk about contaminated worship or defiled worship. I want to talk about some ways that we can have our worship defiled. And looking at the Corinthian example, First of all, worship can be contaminated by worshiping a building. Listen, I'm not saying that buildings aren't good and that they aren't necessary. They certainly are, and we should definitely take care of them. They are gifts, and God gives gives them to us as tools for the kingdom. And so buildings are good, and they're important, and we we need them. It's too hot in Florida in the summer to to meet under a tent. we got to have air conditioning, or else you guys will never listen to a word I say. But what can happen is we fall in love with a place more than we do with God. You know what else can contaminate our worship? Worshiping an experience. I'm not saying that experience isn't part of the Christian life and the Christian walk. We are emotional creatures and God made us that way. And I understand that. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not saying that that doesn't have a place. It certainly does. But what can happen with Christians is we become addicted to creating an experience. At some point, we get to the point where we feel like we're not really walking with God or close to God if we can't feel this experience. That moment that I had that incredible ecstasy, that spiritual high, whether it was the music or most likely it was the sermon, but whatever. (laughs) Whatever it was that created that high, I have to get back to that for me to really feel connected to God. And we, we become worshipers of an experience. And it corrupts our worship. Another way we do it is we worship through compromise, like the Corinthians did. I mean, isn't it a noble attempt to bring people together? Certainly. These are things that we like to classify as heritage, legacy, and tradition. And these things aren't bad. I want you to hear me. These aren't bad at all. They're a part of who we are as Christians. But our affection for them can often turn to worship instead of worshiping God, just like it did with the Corinthians. Does that make sense? They, these things, the building, the experience, the the theological compromise, these things can become our driving focus when it should be focusing on the outward, not the inward. To be clear, there's the other side of this struggle that Paul addresses in Romans, where people throw the baby out with the bathwater and have nothing to do with anything in the past. Nothing to do with the building. Nothing to, you know, so there's both sides of this. 
But in Corinth, he's addressing the fact that they just would not leave the things at all. So there is the other side of it, right? Just want to make sure you hear me say that. Because I don't want to come up here and sound like a guy who's just trying to rip on tradition. That's not what I'm trying to do. But this inward focus is not how the church was designed to operate. So my question for you is, why is it so easy for us to be drawn to and fall in love with buildings or experiences? Why are we so driven as an American church specifically to sanctuary ecumenical worship spaces? I think it's because it's natural to cling to what we can see. Touch in here. Matter of fact, Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? 4, 17, and 18. The things which we see are temporary, but the things we don't see are eternal. We let those things begin to define the presence of God in our lives. And the presence of God, feeling God, is defined by how we interact with these things. But in fact, the experiences and the buildings... While good and, and I'm not, they are powerless to transform you. Did you know that? The experience doesn't transform you. The experience is a result of the transformation. Don't worship the experience. Worship the power of him who has transformed you. It's a failure to fully comprehend that Jesus has made us his sanctuary, his temple, It's the people. God's church was never intended to have as its focal point a temple or a building like the temple in Jerusalem. The idea behind it was, I set up this temple, Solomon's the king, you know, David's gone, Solomon, and people around the world are going to hear about it, and they'll all come from all over the world to meet God in the temple. That was a temporary plan because it was not the optimal We must trust that buildings and experience, as useful and as powerful as they can be, don't, listen, they do not enhance God's presence in our lives. And we cannot worship them unjustly. I have an object lesson for you. Chaz has been holding this for about an hour and a half. Thanks. (laughs) Appreciate it. So I have a couple things I'm going to show you. So... Temple, sanctuary, ecumenical worship is a centripetal force. In other words, a centripetal force is something directed or moving towards a center gathering place. Here is a way to describe. I have a bolt inside this balloon. See, when I move it around, you can see the balloon is pushing the bolt toward the middle, right? It can never get outside. It's, it goes around and around, and as the, and as the force kind of falls, where the bolt just goes right back inside the balloon. It can't ever get out, right? It doesn't get out. That is what we call a centripetal force. This is what temple worship is. This is what experience worship is. I just love that sound. Isn't that cool? Okay. I'm putting it right here on Megan's keyboard so you can figure out what to do with that later. Yeah. Here's what the church should be. It should be a centrifugal force directed or moving away from a center gathering place. And this is the way the church should be. You see the difference between this and the balloon? You see the difference? Christ is the center, holding us where we should be, but the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in us is moving us out 
from what we have a tendency to want to worship, the experience, the building, the place. And we're going out from the center. Christ holding us in. Do you see the difference between temple worship and the way the church is designed to operate? I could swing this really fast and come off and hit somebody. It'd be really fun, but I tied it pretty good, actually. So I'm just glad I didn't hit myself with it. So this is how God intended the church to work. With many temples, God's people spread from the center, which is Jesus, with God's message of the gospel. So just kind of give you a, a quick understanding of it. It used to be that people from all over the world would come to the temple. And then what happens after Christ's work on the cross, we see it happen with the diaspora where Jews were spread all over the world with the gospel. What begins to happen is we become mobile temples. We possess all the ability, all the authority, all the power of that temple that was so venerated. We possess all of that. Why? Because Christ has redeemed us, he's cleansed us, and he has taken up residence within our heart through the Holy Spirit. God is not in this place. I mean, it's a comedy club, for goodness sakes. But he's not in the nicest church building you've ever seen. He's not in there. He is not in there, I promise you. He's not in this place. He is in your place. We house the presence and experience and power of God within us. We use buildings to come together to enjoy it with one another. They're important in that respect, but we do not venerate them because the presence of God is never in a place, ever. So the idea that the Spirit of God is in this place, that is a bad theological thought. The Spirit of God is in us, and we are in this place. This is the concept behind one of our core values at Grace Life, about being mobile. Mobile, organic, biblical, and generous are our core values. Mobile is based upon this theological concept that Paul outlines in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And this is our core value. It's on our website, and and those of you that were with our launch know that this is important. Grace Life is not centered upon one location or facility. This enables us to be a church that belongs to all of Sarasota, not just one neighborhood. We meet here. We got the 1900 building. A lot of times we meet at CN's house, by the way. I don't know if you guys know that. She's always got us over there. We trash the place. We leave. She cleans it up. It's great. (laughs) We have the Nightlife Center on Clark Road. We meet there. We have people meeting at houses. A couple times a week, we meet all over the place. And what I love, I love the fact that Grace Life is not defined by an address. This is the whole point of being mobile. It is a biblical concept that says we are the temple of God and we are the feet of God. How beautiful are the feet of those whom God sends with the gospel to bring the good news. We are where the power and presence of God resides. When we come together, It is powerful, but not because God lives here. He lives in us. The last thing I'll say, I want to make sure that you hear what I'm saying here. This is not designed to be a sermon that tries to cast dispersions on church buildings. God saved me in a church building. It's not designed to be a sermon that casts dispersions on tradition and legacy and heritage. Those things are all great. 
but they can never be more important than the people. Because those things are powerless when we're not in them. That's why it's important to not forget about gathering together. Because when some of our temples are missing, we're not quite as good. Dad, we're so thankful that through some strange reason, because of grace, you decided you want to live inside us flawed human beings. And you gave us grace and mercy and redemption and forgiveness that allowed us to be proper places to house your power and your presence and your experience. Help us, God, not to defile our temples. Amen.